These men were somebody's loved ones, their families and everything. They had meaning to everybody. And for what they went through and what they did, we have to honor them one way or the other. We don't have to honor the war, but we have to honor the soldier. A soldier accompanying a body home from Vietnam encounters the grief of that felled hero's family. I came home and I didn't really feel like I belonged to a certain extent. You know, I had real good friends, but it's like the field jacket. It's best to take everything off so nobody knows. And decades later, he's deeply moved by the sound of a familiar rain that takes him back in memory to the war. Hello, welcome to the Mighty Pen Podcast. I'm David L. Robbins, your host and founder of the Mighty Pen Project, a writing program for veterans and their spouses in partnership with the Virginia War Memorial Foundation in Richmond, Virginia. In this podcast, I'll sit down with Larry Meyer, author of today's two stories, The Salute and Quang Tree Rain. In 1970, Larry served as a lieutenant and artilleryman in Vietnam. He spent seven years in the U.S. Army. Now let's listen to The Salute, movingly read by Harry Kolatz. I'm just outside Petersburg, rolling out on Route 36, Fort Lee, next right. I pull up to the MP station, reporting for a new assignment. The MP responds, the IT brigade headquarters is straight ahead, left on B Avenue. I show him my orders, and I'm politely redirected to Mifflin Hall, the post headquarters. Not sure why I'm here. A red leg with the fighting quartermaster corps? I guess it's a place to stick too many lieutenants promoted up. Fine. After a year in the jungle, put me behind a desk. I get my wish. I'm assigned to the Quartermaster's Brigade S3 shop, our section in charge of post-training operations, broken in with the Major's briefing on his self-importance. I'm grateful for the encouragement. Hope I can measure up to this world of experience. Glance at my new teammates, two smirking captains. Major Hornblower can bluster all he wants. Forget him. I'll follow the lead of these seasoned NAM vets. Under their mentorship, I settle into the Fort Lee Way. Get the daily details out, inspect the training sites, then beat the early rush to the O Club. Return in time to send out the next day's detail requirements, then beat the early rush to the O Club again. It's all fine at first, but not as expected. Hard getting used to the certainty that tomorrow's will all be the same. As much as I hate it, my thoughts lead me back to Charlie Battery. Hours in the O Club with war stories over bourbon provide no relief. Stateside duty, just not as advertised. But one Army universal truth remains. There will always be other duties as assigned. It doesn't take long for my name to pop up on the post-duty rosters. Some are routine, such as languishing overnight in post-HQ as OD. Others are a little more detailed. But I'm not given my first choice. Class 6 inventory officer. Why not? I could tell the difference between bourbon and vodka. Others are a mixed bag of don't volunteer for, such as summary court-martial officer, judge, jury, and hangman. So hard to have a soldier before you for the crime of not adjusting to coming home from NAM. But casualty assistance officer? Never heard of it. Maybe a carry back to World War II days, delivering the feared telegram to the parents. CAO in today's Army lingo, assigned to assist the primary next of camp. Can't be more open-ended. 
no idea where this would lead me. I sign up. I'm assigned to a family who lost their 19-year-old son. He died after only two months in country as a rifleman. It's my first time accompanying the remains of a service member. The casket will arrive in Roanoke, the nearest airport, then be transported to the family near Grundy. With the flight scheduling from Vietnam, I have a couple of days in Roanoke to hit the VA and Social Security offices. The young man's draft and death notices have probably been the family's only contact with the military. I need to make it as smooth as possible, not burden them with, I'll be back in a couple of days with more government paperwork. The plane arrives. A hushed crowd gathers. The honor guard from the local 1st Battalion, 116th Infantry, transfers the flag-draped casket to the waiting hearse. The soldiers come to attention. The detail NCO renders honors. Now, the last leg of this soldier's return begins. Out of Roanoke on I-581 to I-81. I follow the hearse. The flag drapes the casket ahead. It just doesn't seem right. He shouldn't be coming home like this, not stuck in traffic. Quickly, we leave the melee of cars and trucks headed south as those lush blue mountains begin to rise. On the other side of Blacksburg, US 460 turns into a torturous mountain road through the heart of Appalachia, Bluefield, Taswell, Richlands. The rugged mountains loom larger, the curves sharpen, roads have been destroyed by overweight coal trucks. We roll past worn out homes. Who lives here? To those in the flatlands, these folks must be nobodies, just folks sitting on the porch by a sleeping dog, picking at a banjo, passing around a jug. It doesn't matter if that's accurate or not, because I'm following the casket of a soldier from these parts. Our little convoy attracts onlookers as we pull into an Esso station in Grundy. Folks are not accustomed to seeing a hearse trailed by a black sedan with government tags. My greens stick out among the men in miners' overalls. Where are you heading? Bringing one of our boys home? After a brief exchange, I inquire, I'm looking for the Greater Grace Free Will Baptist Church on Hoodow Gap Road. Appreciative of the respect shown by everyone, we head into the heart of Buchanan County over what some might call roads. It's easier to find potholes than patches of asphalt. No straight stretches here, only run-down homes with rusted cars in the yard. Just how do these folks make it day to day? Up ahead stands the church. Like so many found all over rural Virginia, it's a plain white wooden chapel with a steep roof and the ever-present cross. There to greet us is Preacher Johnson and a few men in those same overalls. After some getting to know you pleasantries, they help bear the casket into the church. As everyone starts to depart, I ask, is there a motel nearby? I could have hit myself. How dumb is that? There's nothing nearby this place. Preacher Johnson replies, you're staying with us. Don't argue. It's getting dark and you'll never find your way out of here. I follow Preacher Johnson down the mountain to his home. Not sure what to expect. Doesn't take long. He has two kids running around wanting to play army with my hat. It's okay. They can't hurt it. A stranger is a celebrity. Tell us all about Richmond, the preacher's wife, pulls out all the stops for the meal, blessed eloquently by Preacher Johnson. Dinner and conversations are enjoyed by all, except for the rhubarb pudding. She apologizes for its shortcomings. All that changes after I mention my dad's rhubarb patch behind our garage. Later, sitting by the TV, there's a knock at the door. Preacher Johnson greets the visitor. Bobby, we were expecting you. 
the man who brought home your son, is here. Bobby Anderson, in overalls, has come by to go over my pile of papers. Both of us wade through the stack. Please sign and date here. Now another signature here. What am I doing? Selling a piece of land? Buying his car? I can barely imagine how this father felt. Near the bottom of the heap came the application for a veteran's headstone. Bobby Anderson picks up the form. What does this here mean? Your son is entitled to a grave marker if you want one. Wheezing and coughing, he says, You mean like the one of them they got at Arlington? Much appreciated if you can. No, it would do wonders for his mother. Folks need to remember my Bobby Jr. Yes, sir. Be honored to do that. Bobby Anderson departs. I retrieve my hat once the kids are asleep. The preacher's wife brings out the lemonade. Glad you got to see Bobby. They're a real fine family. Hate seeing all this sorrow. Preacher Johnson joins in. Yes, my daddy baptized Bobby Jr., along with his three sisters. Eleanor, their mom, grew up here, buried her dad. The coal dust did him in. Looks like it will do the same to Bobby, too. With all this heartache, Jesus will have a special place for both of them. With curiosity, I ask, guess everyone grows up to be a minor? On went Preacher Johnson, not Bobby. He's from down in Bristol. Showed up after the war trying to find work. Here tell he soldiered in the army like you. Some say France. Who knows? Can't get a word out of him. The one truth that could be said is he met the love of his life, Eleanor. Bobby's a hard-working man. Would do anything for her and the young'uns. Preacher Johnson's wife remarks, Only makes your coming even harder. Bobby Jr. was his pride and joy. If not fishing, they were hunting. Had to. The only food on the table when the mine shuts down. What will they do now? Good life is hard to come by around these parts. That's true enough. But didn't Bobby sign Bobby Jr.'s army papers? What was he thinking? He'd be alive now. I comment, so sad. If only it could have turned out differently. Agreeing, Preacher Johnson adds, can't judge Bobby too harshly, though. Guess he wanted more for Bobby Jr. than he had. I can't help thinking that Bobby knew this day would come. The good Lord has plans for us, even if we don't know what they are. The next morning, Preacher Johnson and I meet the honor detail from Abingdon Reserve Center at the church. Along with Bobby Anderson, the funeral arrangements are formalized. Preacher Johnson laughs at my question. Yes, son, a Catholic is welcome. Jesus loves us all. Folks, in their best, file into the church to the song, An Unclouded Day Where No Storm Clouds Rise. Preacher Johnson begins in earnest. Sunset is coming, but the sunrise we'll see. A chorus resounds of knowing amens. Testimonies are made to Bobby Anderson Jr.'s life. Uh, some are so sad, some full of joy. All are accompanied by more amens. The piano strikes up the glad reunion day, only to be drowned out by the churchgoers. Then silence, complete. Only the sounds of the detail sergeant's muted commands. The honor guard moves forward in perfect concert. They carry the casket to the gravesite beside the church. A soldier's final rest. Preacher Johnson delivers the blessing, I will meet you in the morning. On command, three volleys are fired. Bobby Anderson flinches on each discharge. The coronet's taps brings tears to Eleanor Anderson. The detail removes the flag before lowering the casket. They fold it and give it to the honor guard sergeant, then to me. Receiving the flag, I present it to Eleanor Anderson. 
She cries uncontrollably. I start. On behalf of, she shouts, y'all killed my boy. Shrieking, she throws the flag to the ground. Y'all took my Bobby from me. I bend to pick up the flag. I tuck in the end and wipe away the dirt. I catch Bobby Anderson's gaze. He's standing by himself. I'm not sure what to expect. Would he also empty his wrath on me? Bobby Anderson steps up. So close. I hear him breathing, see his tears. He reaches to the flag in my hands. His fingers touch it. Then he takes the flag. He pulls it close to his chest, staring at it. He raises his eyes to mine and nods. I step back. I render and hold my salute. One soldier to another. We understand. Larry Meyer, author of The Salute, beautifully read by Harry Colettes. Larry, that story seems to me to be about three things. Remembrance, respect, and remorse. I'd like to take them in that order. Tell me, as a warrior, of a complicated conflict about remembrance, the importance to our country, our culture, and to our warriors. Well, I, I think it's something that you can't understand yourself. I think it's, uh, you said I had to go and do my duty, and, and you went and you tried to do the best you could. I think that's the most that you need to be remembering soldiers for, is they did what was asked of them, and they tried to do it the best they could. You wrote two very powerful stories for the Mighty Pen. The Virginia War Memorial's mandate is remembrance. The uh, importance to our society, to our culture, and our history of remembering warriors and conflict, it's not just stories of heroism, is it? And the importance of that. Give me your thoughts. You know, I got a friend, and uh, they found a whole bunch of letters and everything for a Civil War a soldier. I don't know where they found them, in the attic or someplace, but they did. They decided to um, publish them. You know, it's not a really a great book. <laughs> you know, it's it's okay. But uh, what it is is uh, all the stories and concerns and everything of a, some private in the Army who was somebody's nobody in the Army and how he was hungry and how he wanted to go home and how he missed his family and how he hated the weather. And I think that's the true story of soldiers and everything. You can read all you want about all these generals, you know, up and down the pike. They, they got everything about them. But, but the story of war is, is the private. And I think that's the big thing with uh, remembrance. It's written in young people's blood yeah. way too much. Thank you for that, Larry. Thank you. In the story, you wrote this powerful piece of dialogue where the father says to you, folks need to remember Bobby Jr., for yourself, the importance of remembrance of the dead of war. You have said to me personally how difficult it was for you to walk by the Vietnam Memorial. Talk about the difficulty of accepting the costs of war versus the necessity of it sometimes. When I was in Vietnam, you didn't think of the cost of war, i.e. the people around you were killed because you had to put it away from yourself. You couldn't get emotional because other people were going to get killed when you got emotional. And so I think 
when I look at this story, it's, it's more about going through that door and coming back and seeing the reality of life that these men were somebody's loved ones, their families and everything. They had meaning to everybody. And for what they went through and what they did, we have to honor them one way or the other. We don't have to honor the war, but we have to honor the soldier. Mm. All right, Larry, we're at the Virginia War Memorial, a very large complex dedicated to one thing, and that's recording and commemorating stories of service. I want to ask you, having written two beautifully powerful stories, and now that you've heard them, the power of storytelling for a warrior, does it, I guess the only word I can ask is, does it help? I think so. I'm real personal about telling my stories over there. Matter of fact, the only thing my wife really knows is just little bits and pieces that I say here and there. But I think the power of these stories has been, I can pass this on to my family. They know something about who I was and what happened. And I I think maybe that's the, the thing with a lot of these stories that these people write. It's not so much to tell the world but to tell the people around them and have something there is concrete that can be passed on. And maybe the world will listen. Yeah, maybe they will. Last question for you, Larry, and thank you so much for coming in today. Let's talk about a happy topic. What's going on with you today? Well, I got a new job. I am the mentor of a three-and-a-half-year-old and a seven-year-old, and my main focus is PEPA, which means spoiler <laughs> of kids, is to get them into trouble they never, ever thought about and ask their mom, I do a damn good job. (laughs) (laughs) I would expect nothing less. Now our second story, Quang Tree Rain. Again, read by Harry Kolatz. Then I'll talk more with author Larry Meyer. My day had finally come. Received orders. Leaving the battery and going home. Goodbye, Vietnam. But not before the Army could get their last shot at me. I'd spent days in a funky oak club in Da Nang drinking bourbon with an alcoholic dog whose name is as lost as my hours there. Then I heard, Meyer, report to the company for your boarding pass. Well, it's, it's like a dream. I was getting on the freedom bird, going back to the world. Wow. The sensation when the plane lifted off and my body was no longer connected to the NAM couldn't be described simply because it was beyond my feeble ability to understand. As the world below changed from green to blue, it was time to revisit all the plans I had dreamed of for 12 months. I wasn't sure I could even do them all. Most likely not. But I did know for sure I would hit the road running, pick up where I had left off. Life wasn't going to be good, it was going to be great. But the sad truth is, you can't return to your past. Too much happened in between. I was not the same, and I didn't even know it. When I got home, my mom was the first to notice something was not right. She thought I would arrive, get out of the uniform, and be out the door. She asked, why don't you leave the house? Why don't you go out with your buddies? Of course... Mom didn't know it was safer to be hunkered down with Gentle Ben, the legendary rat of the DMZ. Mom questioned why I was staying up after the test pattern came on the TV. But Mom, I thought, 
I have to be up. North Vietnamese night crew would be dropping in 122s soon, just like they did the previous nights. I felt I had not changed. Everything was the same. As time went on, I did get together with my best buddy, Doug. Hey, Larry, great tan there. What you been doing? Silence. Better not answer that one. Even so, what could I say? Or, once at a party, a champagne cork went off behind me. Great fun to see me jump. Great fun for everyone except for me. Yeah, I knew if you heard the whistling, your name wouldn't be on it. But better to not take any chances. Why was I having cold sweats while in Woody's and Tyson's Corner at Christmas? Guess it was tough enough to keep your eyes on a few villagers, but a crowded store? Can't do everything. But hearing others berate my service, that was the worst. I felt I did what was asked of me. I was not a hero by any means. I just did the best I could. I felt pride in that. But not everyone agreed. I was asked in the Cincinnati airport while in uniform, how many babies did you kill? And in a job interview, we don't hire people with your skill. But to hear it from the people dearest to you? Now, that's another level. Dad and his signal corps general friend mocked my service by saying the soldiers in Nam didn't know how to fight. If it were World War II, it would have been different. How do they know? Neither ever felt a bullet go by them in any war. It just hurts. So, over time, I learned to stay under the radar. The possible exception was my old field jacket, stripped down to be as plain as possible. But, like Peter, I could not deny myself. It was who I was, plain and simple. The field jacket wanted its insignias back. Like the field jacket, the war was pushing back at me. Then something happened. Those many years of denial collapsed. Some 15 years after leaving Nam, my wife Vera and I were flipping through the channels from moonlighting to dynasty to whatever, trying to find something to waste our time on. Then we hit Channel 23, PBS, with a live form at the University of Wisconsin. It was a roundtable of a bunch of vets who were talking about the war's impact on their daily lives. I don't know why, but I was drawn to it. These were regular folks, as far as I could tell. Nothing special. They acted like me. Not Rambo stuff, you know, heading down to the local bar and going commando on everyone there. No, regular stuff. I wasn't even sure what that meant. Maybe it was living on the edge. Why gas up when the yellow light is not on? Maybe it was just being alert. Like when I sit up against a wall in a restaurant so I could spot trouble. Maybe it was avoiding memories. I was so terrified to visit the wall that it took me several visits to walk past all those names in tears. But like everything on PBS, the program had an agenda, pushing the vet center. I had never heard of it, but I saw the 1-800 number. No way. Not for me. I discovered that the VA's answer to PTSD was handing out pills. The answer to all that ails you. As could be expected, vets weren't going back. Maybe they found a nickel bag to be a better substitute. There was definitely less paperwork. So the VA began storefront counseling centers. On a lark, I called the Richmond Center on Franklin Street. I thought, why am I doing this? I was ready to hang up if anyone answered. What am I getting into? I made the call and stayed on the phone. I'm Larry, and I am a vet. That had a nice ring to it. On the other end was Gloria. Welcome home came back at me. The power in those words was unbelievable. 
I had no idea what to do next. It was not supposed to happen this way. I was definitely out of my comfort zone. Fortunately, Gloria took over from there and she got me an appointment. I was doomed. What had I done? Now I had to show up. The initial counseling was with Gloria. What was the purpose? I guess to find out if I qualified as nam crazy. Eventually, I made the grade. I was put into a group to do whatever groups do. Dan was the center team leader. He had the credentials, a PhD, a silver star, and a purple heart. <laughs> what a bunch it was. The group had the usual suspects, grunts, and marines. However, the tales were not all about being out in the bush. Gramps was a B-52 pilot tormented by the innocents who received his payload. Top was a Marine's Marine in my book. He felt that he had failed to prepare his recruits well enough. And there was Dave, whose dad couldn't talk to him about the war. Later, I found out that they were both screaming eagles. A. Shaw Valley, Beston. A true living saint was Martha, a triage nurse. What more can be said about her? Then there was Roger, with whom I had a connection. He served in the DMZ with the 1st of 5th Mech, northernmost. Roger was with P Company, 75th Rangers. I am sure he got up close and personal with the local bad guys along Rocket Ridge, which extended up to North Vietnam along the Blue Line. I was with Charlie Battery, 5th of 4th Artillery. Even though I never set foot on Rocket Ridge, I knew it well. The NVA there delighted in putting as many 122 craters as possible inside the wire of Charlie II, our home. To put it mildly, our group was not shy about talking about our experiences. Dan was the catalyst. Had a knack about letting us feel free to let it out, and we did, maybe sometimes to Dan's chagrin, but not all of us. Roger was like a clam, but we all knew he had stories. You could see it in his face. As silent as he was, he was always there, even if he just sat there. I wished he could open up, but that was not happening. One dreary, overcast Saturday in February, I got a phone call out of the blue from Roger. I answered, hey, what's up? He started babbling about this, about that, and a lot of nothing. My only thought was how to end the conversation. I just didn't have time. Why did he have to be bothering me? There are other guys he could have called. Then, looking out the kitchen window, I saw it. I was hard to make it out first, but there it was, a very fine mist. Roger, is it the rain? He sort of grunted. Yeah. And the realization was there, why he called me. It was the Quang Tree rain. This was not the hard monsoon I lived with as a F.O. in the 4th Infantry down south. No, no, no. This rain was worse than that. It went on for two or so months from somewhere in December to February. Everything was damp. Poncho liners would stick to you when you tried to sleep. It was so bad, a few gun bunnies had Mama-san and Cam Lo dry their jungle fatigues over water buffalo chips. That was true desperation. Yet... Going out to the perimeter at night was the nightmare. We had to cross a tank trail churned into soup by the M48s. One wrong step and your boot would be sucked off. It was Quang Tree that taught us all about war. 
No more John Wayne stuff. Audie Murphy, forget it. This was the real deal. Kill or be killed. Survive at all costs. If you thought about yourself only, you would never make it home. Surviving was all about working for each other. War is the ultimate team game. The irony was that before going to Nam, some kids couldn't drink from the same water fountain in Roanoke as I. We learned to share canteens. Skin color didn't matter if we were to watch each other's back. Still, we weren't that good looking after each other. We failed. Once at Langvey, a howitzer blew up. It was bad powder, as I understood it. The breech block went through the floor of the cab. It was buried deep into the ground. The round never left the tube. The three gunners vanished without a trace. Almost. I heard, LT, what do I do with this? In his hand was part of a jawbone. There were three guys, and all I got was this. But it was the Holy Grail. The difference between KIA and MIA. We failed them. We didn't live up to our part of the deal. I, I couldn't change that. We said, don't mean nothing. But we didn't fail that last request. They did go home. Roger called several more times. Unknowingly, we started to open up, both of us. After all, I was probably no better than he was. Out came people we knew, places we'd been, and things we did. More importantly, without knowing it, we shared the deeper meaning of it all. What we said to each other and what these stories were had been lost in many years of memory. Does it matter if we forgot? Not really. The memory of where this led us is what counts. Both of us saw a path to finding shelter from the storm. Shelter from that quang tree rain. We joined in the studio with Larry Meyer, my friend from the Mighty Pen Project, Larry, the author of Quang Tree Rain and The Salute. Larry, let's talk about Quang Tree Rain, the story we just heard first. Question I have for you, because Quang Tree Rain is a story about homecoming. Talk to us about your homecoming, and then let's maybe broaden the conversation to your thoughts on the homecoming for all the Vietnam vets. Well, homecoming was strange. I think that's the biggest thing. I was anticipating just coming home. The thing that really struck me was that nobody wanted to hear about it. I think there was a lot of anti-war at that point in time. The response in the media and everything, in a lot of respects, was a lot of this Rambo and everybody going crazy. and I don't think that was really the average vet. When I heard that program at the University of Wisconsin, they were just regular guys trying to get by in life. They weren't running around wild, trying to adjust to why something would irritate them or why they would get emotional about something. Look, we all know returning veterans got a raw deal. We also know that the reporting on the war, as it can be, was pretty breathless. Yeah. But your own personal homecoming was what was described so poignantly in Quang Tree. Tell me about the rain. How did that trigger? Well, the rain, like I said in the story, it went on for several months. Why it triggered me that day, I don't know, because my whole focus was trying to get Roger off the phone. <laughs> but out there, I looked at it, and I guess what I heard in Roger was somebody that I 
knew and I could trust. He'd been on the same ground that I'd been on. This is somebody that would understand, yeah, I know what this rain means. I think that's where the trigger really hit me, was that connection with Roger. Where did it go from there? Was that the beginning point of your healing? I think that was the, the beginning point. Afterwards, I found out that I had a knack for meeting with middle school and high school kids. And how I got involved in that, I'm not too sure. It was to the extent that one time we met with a group from our church, youth group, and we went to see Platoon. And with me was a uh, infantry captain and a naval chaplain who was in the, with the Marines. And what came out of that was hearing kids ask questions. Now, they, they always pop in that one there and say, how does it feel like to kill? And, you know, mm. I don't want anyone to get near that question. But they would ask questions that they were interested in. And that was the first time anybody was really interested in, in what I went through. Mm. And to me, that was unbelievable. Talk to me about writing Quang Tree Rain for the Mighty Pen. How did it feel once that was on? You know, you captured that genie between the four corners of a page. How did that feel? It was my story. It was me. I don't like to talk about a lot of war stuff. I, mean, I don't like to talk about running around in the woods, tossing grenades and things like that. But this was the story that really hit me coming home. It was, I came home and I didn't really feel like I belonged to a certain extent. You know, I had real good friends, but it's like the field jacket. It's best to take everything off so nobody knows. Larry, the experience of being a warrior in America, what is that like now that it's 50 years and on behind you? Do you, do you feel the pride and the camaraderie of the, the men and women who served in Vietnam? You guys greet each other, or is there still some kind of quang tree rain falling somewhere? A lot of it's moved past, I think. I don't have anger for where we were treated when we came home. I understand the feelings. And to a certain extent, they, they were my feelings. But one thing I really feel important, anytime I see a vet that has a hat on, Vietnam hat, or something, I always go up to him and greet him and say, hey, who are you with? Mm -hmm. You know, it might be only about a five minute conversation, 10. I mean, I actually got into a series. I see him all the time. And I think he was the only guy in the you know, whole United States Army that would eat I enjoy ham and eggs in a sea ration can. That's kind of my mission. I feel good about that. I feel like, yeah, it says something to about them and let them be able to say something about themselves. Well, you wrote a powerful story regarding this in, in Quang Tree Rain. And uh, Larry Meyer, thank you for coming in. It was an honor to have you as a student uh, in the Mighty Pen. It's so good to see you again. And you folks at home were shaking hands across yeah. the table. And I've really appreciated everything that I've learned and the memories and the people I met with the Mighty Pen. It's, it's been a real honor to be able to be in that group. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. The Mighty Pen Project is a free writing program for military veterans offered by the Virginia War Memorial Foundation a 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to learn more about the Mighty Pen or sign up for one of our writing classes on Zoom, or just send us your thoughts, email us at mppodcast at vawarmemorial.org or use the link in the podcast description. 
If you want to read today's stories and many more, use the link to go to the Mighty Pen Archive. Hey, and if you enjoy this podcast, please share it. Music for this episode was provided by David Monserrati from the VCU Arts Department of Music. If you'd like to support the Mighty Pen, follow the charitable donation link in the podcast description. I'm David L. Robbins, and I want to thank you for listening to the Mighty Pen Podcast. It's an honor.